Uh, you're listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I am Brian Benham. And I am Greg Porter. And today we are joined by Kurt Van Filipowski <laughs> from Confounded Machine. You can find Kurt on Instagram and YouTube. You've been doing a little series lately, Kurt, on uh, just kind of a almost a daily vlog, but it's not daily. It's every maybe third day or something like that, but following some of the progress of your pen making. And mm. I I find it fascinating to watch your entire world um, for, for those who don't know and the uninitiated. Uh, Kurt is currently making titanium pens, right? That's the only medium you're working in, correct? Yeah, that's it. Yep. Only titanium. And they are fully titanium all the way down. And I will get into some details about them and, and some design related things. But uh, tell me a little bit about what, what prompted you to start putting those videos out. Uh, I mean, mainly it was just, I, I wanted to do YouTube videos. I mean, I did a bunch in the past and then I just, I kept recording and uh, just never had time to put videos together because you start working on a business and then you realize like videos just, they don't pay the bills, so they get pushed back. But then part of the reason that I have people that are like knocking on my door, buying my product is because of videos. So I'm like, well, I gotta, I gotta keep releasing these. So I started off at a pretty brisk pace, um, releasing, I think it was up to like four a week and then, uh. I mean, he's only been doing this for a few months now, trying to get more regular, regular on my uploads. Um, and then I started burning through all my footage. And uh, as I'm getting busier again, I noticed the the pace of the videos is starting to slow back down. But I'm going to try to hold it at like eh, one or two a week. Um, I feel like that's enough to you know maintain current. Uh, so I'm not sitting on old footage for so long. Yeah, I have the same same problem as uh, that uh, I might get busy or somebody will ask me to do the same thing that I've already built before and already done a video on that. So then it's like, all right, well, I don't want to do another video. And so I have like that whole content hole where I'll go a couple of months without posting anything. So as you're going forward, uh, do you have plans to share more of the how-to behind how you like more details and how you, how you make the pens or just to keep that content flowing? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, basically, I mean, I was kind of questioning myself. I'm like, how many videos can I honestly do of me building pens, which is essentially a repetitive thing. Like I do the same thing over and over and over, but I've already, I mean, I've done, I don't know, 20 odd videos, 20, 30 videos. And it's like, oh, there's, there's tons of stuff I can share. And just like people geek out on the super minutia. I mean, at least people that are following my channel, like they're, they're totally into spending whatever five, 10 minutes talking about one specific little thing. I think that's the whole reason that they're following me on, on that specific, you know, platform is, is just for the, the super geeky content. So I could probably, I, yeah, going for a while. <laughs> I definitely fall into that category. When the rabbit hole starts to get really deep, that's when I get really, really interested. And I, I find over, I, I was trying to figure out how long I've been following you, Kurt, how, how long that relationship is. And interestingly enough, uh, I pulled out the packaging from the first pen. That was an old pen. <laughs> yeah, from 21. So that's three years old. And I know I was following you before that. So it's probably been four or five years now. But I've watched you go through an entire sequence of finishes and materials that has changed dramatically in terms of what your output is. So mm -hmm. what what I'd like to talk about a little bit is kind of where you started and mm -hmm. how that trail has developed over the course of your pen making? Sure. I mean, like initially I didn't even want to make pens. Uh, I just, uh, 
I, I, I was working full time. I went to school for electronic engineering. I, I kind of did that. And I started dabbling with a lot of CNC. Um, my old boss had me reverse engineering uh, a bunch of weird parts. Um, so he kind of paid me to learn CAD. And once you learn that, you kind of, it's kind of a slippery slope. So I, I built a CNC router and then I just kind of kept going that way. And then I eventually needed to do a little bit of metalworking. I got, I was big into art. I still am big into RC. Um, and that's kind of like, if you have a, if you have a CNC router and you have something to make round parts, like you can, you can make a lot of parts on these, you know, yeah. planes and helicopters. Um, so I just bought a little benchtop lathe and started messing around with it. And, uh, I've eventually made myself a pen and just carried it in my pocket and really liked it. And people were like, Hey, that's cool. And they pick it up and I'm like, Oh, that's a heavy pen. Can you make me one? And then just slowly started from there. Um, so then I started making brass pens and I think, I think initially I sold them on Etsy. Um, uh -huh. I sold a bunch of really early, I think they call they were called the machinist pen. And I sold a bunch of those on Etsy and I was like, whoa, people will pay me money to make these pens. And then it just, <laughs> that kind of just, I just played with that for years and just kind of slowly and slowly and slowly grew it to a point where I was like, you know what? I think I might even be able to leave my job and do something like this. And that's eventually kind of what it's turned into. Well, so two two follow-ups there you said two things that kind of kind of hit me a little bit i want to talk about the escape velocity to leave i don't know if you were in the corporate if you were in the corporate world or if you were you know maybe not so much in the corporate world but what that escape velocity is but the first thing i want to touch on you said rc you were you're flying planes and helicopters you bet yeah and you're still doing that uh yeah i mean this transition now i don't fly helis anymore but i have like i have a few um uh, like I have a four inch, four inch quad, like a, uh, okay. like all the FPV ones you see flying around with the big goggles and all that jazz. I got, I got big into that. That's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. I, well, okay. I grew up really wanting to get into RC planes and not having nearly enough money to do so. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so I would go out to the, to the airfield is, is how we referred to it. I don't know what the, what the right term is there, but mm -hmm. there was a, there was a big RC community in Kansas city when I lived there and we'd go out and just watch them. And I'd, Oh, if I just had an extra thousand dollars, I could buy the radio. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I think my first electric RC plane, because I had a gas trainer and then I bought an electric, like right when like lithium batteries were coming out, I think it cost me like $1,400 for a foamy with like some basic four channel radio. And I mean, now you can get started for 300 bucks and you can have some pretty decent equipment, but yeah, it's it a spendy hobby to get into. <laughs> it is. And, and I'll say, I mean, the first reason that I was really interested in it was the making part of it, right? Like you go to the hobby store and you get an armload of balsa wood and mm -hmm. a set of plans and you set about making this thing that hopefully two years from now will will be airborne and airworthy. And mm -hmm. if not, <laughs> you know, back to the drawing board. Uh, but never got there. And so I've I've always kind of thought at some point when I retire, maybe that's going to become my hobby. Oh, get into it now. Get, it's like, it's so much easier. It's so much easier to enter. The price is better. Like everything is better now. Get into it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I I have one too many hobbies right now. No, Fair. I, I should say that a different way. I have one too many jobs right now <laughs> that get in the way of my hobbies. So yeah. I'd have to give up a job to to do another hobby. So does the uh, the helicopter land within the uh, the F whatever regulations for like drones? Because I guess drones now you have to have like a pilot's license or something. Yeah. Does that um, helicopter land within that uh, those regulations, or is this a, a whole uh, side tangent that no one no one pays any attention to? I mean, thankfully, I grew up in the country, so it was just private land, so I could kind of do relatively what I want, as long as you stay under you know a certain height. But I mean, yeah. it's I mean it's it's crazy nowadays. Everything is so different. Um, weight 
limits come into play and uh, i mean you have to get a license to operate the like fpv gear there's there's lots of stuff um you used to have to get your ham license to operate some of it um just because oh. you're transmitting got so much power but now it's gotten so popular that not everyone's gonna go out in their ham get their ham license so yeah, there's a there's a lot of legalities around it just i don't know try to be a good person don't do bad things <laughs> yeah <That's... laughs> if everybody only uh followed that uh that path that yeah. kind of coming back around um uh, your 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 job in the as an electronics engineer or electrical mm -hmm. engineer is that mm -hmm. how did how did you say that uh electronic i went way. to it was, no it was a trade school it was uh electronic engineering tech is i think what the actual program was so was that designing circuits or what 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 did you come out doing uh that basically yeah it was all like uh it's like low voltage um so integrated circuits um a little bit of computer sciencey kind of stuff in there um i basically came out with knowledge to i don't know uh like do repair work, design work for like PCBs and uh, microcontrollers. One, I mean, it was dated technology when I was taking it. Like we were, we were learning yeah. assembly and all kinds of really old old tech. But um, I ended up coming out and working in uh, uh, an arm of the oil field up here, uh, doing some electronics work. Um, so that was nice um, while it lasted. Or I mean, it lasted, but before I got tired of it. So <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think with anything uh you sort of you can burn out pretty easily and then there mm. are other things like machining that <laughs> are are a pretty enticing thing if you can if you can figure out and I'll go back to what I what I said earlier there there's this notion I have of an escape velocity you know I think a lot of folks in the I'll call it the maker world the machining world are people who are working at night in their garage on secondhand machinery that they've bought to try and you know figure out something whatever that is it could be rc parts or something but once you get into it there's this really strange draw mm -hmm. to understanding automation and production and efficiencies and that rabbit hole starts getting very deep but once once you've shoveled out a few loads of dirt you realize that there's an awful lot of money to be made in this industry and i think you have an advantage you're up in canada uh, you have an advantage with social medicine that we don't have down here that keeps a lot of people handcuffed to their job uh, because because the alternative of not having that corporate uh, health care is that you have to pay it yourself and it's really darn expensive. But what I guess what was that decision making process like for you when you were making money on the side doing things doing probably that analysis of. How much can I make if I do this more? Uh, and what's my risk? I don't even know if I have it fully solved yet. Um, but like basically just I'm I was lucky enough that I had a day job that paid decently well and mm -hmm. I was able to put money aside. So I had a long runway of time where I could figure this out. So I kind of just slowly chipped away at it. And I mean, I worked evenings and weekends, like you said, every yep. spare minute um for years, um, trying to figure out if I could ever push it hard enough to make it go. Uh, and then I basically got to a point where I would work all day and then come home and like work all night and then, you know, not see my wife or anything. And then be like, okay, I can't, like, I can't go on this forever. I know how much I can make at this current state, but if I had, you know, eight more hours or, you know, if I had a whole more day to, to play with this, I could, I could squeak by, like I could make our bills. Um, we wouldn't be making good money, um, but I could live. And I'm like, and then that would just buy me more time to run and figure this out. And that's, that's basically the choice I made. I mean, I had a bit, little bit of the luxuries of, um, I didn't have a lot of, um, a lot of things depending on me at that point. Um, our financial situation was okay. So I could take a bit of a risk. Um, uh -huh. 
So that was uh that was basically the call I made. I mean, and uh, I mean now I'm I like just now am starting to kind of parallel what I was making in the corporate world, if you want to call it that. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a tough slog. But like you said, it's super addicting because there's no there's no start and end point. Like working at a day job, you have kind of a, like if you're paying if you get paid X amount of dollars, you're only going to make X amount of dollars more. Like you're never going to ten times your salary or a hundred times it. Mm-hmm. Whereas like working for yourself the sky's the limit. Like you can, you can also go to the very bottom, but you can also go to the top. So it's, it's addicting for sure. Well, I saw, I, w- I wish I could remember the account, but uh, there's a machinist who has, uh, I think it's like a Haas and a brother and maybe one or two other machines in his garage. And mm-hmm. then he's got a robot arm for each one of them. So, you know, it's a, it's a cell basically with a robot yeah. feeding parts. So every single thing is automated, but this guy also has a full-time day job. And so he goes out in the morning and lays out all the parts. Yeah. And then he hits the button on all four machines and leaves for work for the day and then comes home and collects all the parts up. And I'm watching him going, this guy is probably five Xing his income by doing this. Like it, don't get me wrong. Whoever I, I'm guessing he has a person cutting material. Uh, the supplier he gets it from may be cutting it and he probably pays a premium, but he's able to just put those blanks in the cells and go. And it's it's just fascinating. I wish I could remember the account, but. I'm I'm pretty sure I follow that dude. He's got like, it's a super, like it, he said, it, I always see him opening his garage and just kind of peeking around. He's got a bunch of robots and an arm and like a, a little fixture station there. Yeah, it's yep. that, that's the dream, right? Yeah. yeah. Part, part in one box and finished part out the other box. Yeah. And I, I say that because that's where the rabbit hole is. Like this guy is in it <laughs> and and he's realized that if, if, as long as he can pay his electric bill, he has four employees that work full time for him for $0 other than, you know, whatever the, the borrowing uh, uh, interest is on those machines. Right. Yeah, no, totally. So Sorry, uh, no, that's, that's okay. Uh, so speaking of rabbit holes, I I was watching your channel and was watching you anodize stuff, and you basically dipped this the pen into the anodizing, mm-hmm. and it like within seconds, it's just like going through a range of colors. Like I I want to know how that happens. Like and like when you get to a color, how do you know when to pull it out before it changes to a different color? Or how do you control? How do you control the anodizing? That's a that's a really cool area where titanium is kind of a super unique metal. Um, like you can anodize a lot of things with dyes, but titanium just anodizes with pure voltage. So, um, and it, you don't need a you can anodize titanium in coke. Like you don't need a crazy electrolyte or anything. Um, you just need voltage. So you put a piece of titanium, you know, clean titanium into um, some anodizing bath and hit it with a certain amount of voltage, like twenty four ish volts, is going to get you blue. Like no matter what, you're going to get a blue, a very close to a blue, and like. So it has a spectrum and you just go through the voltage spectrum and you get the color. And it's just building up an oxide layer on the titanium uh, that hits the light hits it and you, you see a different color. Technically, the oxide layer is clear. We just see it as a color when the light hits it, which is kind of a mind melter. Um, but yeah, so to do those rainbows, um, the voltage just be set high, like to the highest voltage I want. And then um, as it's anodizing, I just slowly pull it out of the bath as all the colors kind of come into where I want them to be. So that creates the 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 gradient is what you're saying. Correct. Yeah. Great. But if you wanted to, uh, so on the one that I watched, it started out like yellow. Mm-hmm. So how did you control the voltage to go from yellow to purple? 
when you're oh, holding I, onto the thing or or was I missing something in the video? Uh, it's likely that I had it set to go to purple. So like purple is a 68 volts. Um, so as soon as I connected it, if both hands were in the shot, it's just the, the bath was coming up to voltage and there's some, uh, it just basically takes a little bit of time for the anodizing layer to build up. So you probably see it cycle through all the color spectrum before purple. And then as soon as it starts nearing the the voltage that purple's at, it just slows down and then it stops at purple. So uh, that, that's probably it. how it, yeah. I got it. So now my next question is, this is top secret. You don't have to, you don't have to disclose this on, <laughs> on the podcast. Cause I, I understand there are some things that I do that I don't really, like if someone really wanted to know, they could figure it out, but right. I don't, I, I wanted to make it difficult to hold my, my thing, but sure. Um, I, I am really curious how this is done. This pen with all these different kinds of swirls of color and, uh, yes. and things. Yeah. So that's, um, like, I don't want to gatekeep knowledge. People have, you know, taught me a bunch of stuff. So that's called entropic anodizing. Um, I'm not going to tell people how to do it because you can look it up and find it. And honestly, that's probably the bigger barrier for most people, just the actual looking it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there are loads of great videos on it and it's, it's the exact same process. You do it with a couple different, uh, it's done with heat and acid essentially. Um, it's it's a it's an easy process to do and it's a super annoying process to do well and repeated um so that's <laughs> it's kind of a nice um like a fail safe to keep a lot of people from doing it because it's it's complicated and it's annoying and it's caused me lots of tears in the past but uh yeah. it's a super striking kind of uh, visual anodized for sure yeah so definitely is that oh, ahead, all right, it's okay is that titanium on that one as well yeah, you bet. You bet. That's all all titanium. Pretty yeah. much, I think everything on my page is going to be titanium. All right. Can you do that technique on other things like aluminum or something? Mm, not that I know of. I mean, with masking and anodizing, you might be able to get something similar. Uh, but as far as I know, only titanium is uh, titanium and maybe a zirconium. Some of the exotics are the only ones that kind of exhibit that weird uh, kind of pattern. entropic Crazy effect. Pattern. Yeah. yeah, it's it's absolutely beautiful. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I I kind of feel like maybe at some point in my life, I'm going to have the bandwidth to be the, the crazy scientist. <laughs> and that, as, as we're looking at that and you're asking your question, Brian, I'm thinking, why couldn't you in an anodizing bath for aluminum swirl in some, you know, 50 weight motor oil and affect, because, because aluminum's anodizing can be affected by its ability to stick. So one of the great ways to mask aluminum is to anodize a certain part of it and then scrape off that anodizing and then re-anodize. And that becomes the new, the, the old stays the same because it can't re-anodize. Mm -hmm. I wonder, I wonder if there's a, a masking tech. Anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm going off the deep end. One of these days I, I will, I'll have enough time to do all these wacky experiments. So your, your theory is to like paint on oil in a swirled pattern and that would be the mask and then anodize the rest yeah. of the pen. Or, you know, um, yeah. being, being in the guitar world, there's, um, there's a swirl painting technique for guitars that, uh, people who are into guitars, like there's people who are really good at swirling guitars. Okay. And the technique is you fill up a 50 gallon trash can with water, and then you take colors of paint and you let them sit on the surface of the water. And then you yeah. dunk it in just, just like they do, uh, the, the di hydro dipping now mm -hmm. with, with mm -hmm. guns and things of that nature. But the water is, is what makes it all go right. Like it's, it's very simple technique when you look at it, but when you see a painted guitar like that, it's like, Oh, wow. You know, it's like a tie dye. Right. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I just, 
tend to believe there's probably a way to anodize aluminum like that. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, I'm sure you are. There's, yeah, there's people doing fantastic. I've seen some really amazing aluminum anodizing. We're like, what, how do they do? And you're trying to think if you're like, how do they mask that? Or what are they? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, good gravy. I have, I don't know how many thousands of parts anodized a year. And we get a lot back with, you know, errors in the finish and things of that nature. And when you ask about it, it's like, oh yeah, the D smut uh, didn't get, cleaned off of it so it had extra whatever i don't know what smut is or, <laughs> <laughs> but it had that on it when it went into tank number two or three or whatever it was uh but yeah so you would intentionally screw it up in a very cool swirly pattern i suppose <laughs> but well so um kind of kind of turning back a little bit you started in brass mm -hmm. right and i'm i'm saying that like it's a fact i'm i should be asking <laughs> did you in fact start in brass Kurt, is that where you started life on in the machining world? <laughs> um, actually, the very first pen I made, I made out of um, just like a, a silver steel, like a tool steel rod, just okay. because I had a bunch of them floating around. But most of the like products I actually made for people was brass, just because it's such an easy material to work with. Okay, and then and then as you, for those who may be watching this, uh, I have one of Kurt's <sighs> early early pens. I think these were early early. I'm saying that this was. Number 94 of the Flux series uh, yeah, back old, in the older pen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this uh, anyway, but this is a brass pen, right? With a really cool patina mm -hmm. finish on there, uh, which I'm guessing you did that with acids and things of that nature and then kind of washed them. Yeah. On brass, that would have been done probably with like a, like an ammonia or salt. There's a billion ways to do it, but you're essentially just doing a forced patina and brass is cool just because you get the greens and blues and really nice colors. And I think those ones, are all clear Cerakoted as well um, when they were done just to try to protect that patina uh, keep it from wearing off so quickly. Well, this is this is my shop pen, uh, right which I think most people would cringe at that. And it's like, well, if I have things I like, I actually put them where I use them all the time. So it's my shop pen. It gets knocked around and the finish is perfect. There's not a single blemish on there. So oh, cool. <laughs> I, I guess that's a that's a good advertisement for Cerakote in terms <laughs> of the <laughs> durability of that finish. One of the cool cool little details that I find on this pen. And I don't know if most people would notice it, but the, the screw in the end mm. is blued. I'm guessing that's a steel screw. I think that was right when I switched over to titanium screws as is well. Okay. So that's probably a titanium screw as well. Yeah. That okay. was right on the, I was, yeah, I used to have steel screws for the longest time. And then I made titanium and I'm like, how am I going to get a magnet to stick to titanium? So there's a magnet inside that screw so that the other side would stick to it. And those are fun pens to make. I kind of miss doing those. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know. Every time I look at it, it's just one of those little details. It's its like a, there's a shoe designer and I can't remember who it is that makes the soles of their shoes red, mm. you know? And it's something that you don't see. You just catch a glimpse of it every once in a while. And I feel like that's one of those little design details that it's like the author of this piece really thought about this. It's not just a, mcmaster car catalog item this is something special for this pen mm -hmm. yeah i like manufacturers that do i mean love or hate apple whatever you think i mean i think it's cool that they do branding like inside all their devices like you're never gonna see that unless you tear it apart it's like no oh, there's a little branding in there like i don't know it's just kind of cool yeah yeah that's kind of like the uh titanium springs that you uh, yeah <laughs> do i was i was i was very fascinated watching you just like by hand make a spring just yeah, uh, that was more out of necessity than anything. I mean, I wish I could have just bought those springs, um, but I kind of designed myself into a bit of a 
tight corner. So I ended up having to make mine and then yeah, and I, I liked them. But the new pen I just made, um, I'm now going through the exact same thing where I'm having to fight with springs. So likely, uh, likely making my own springs once again. <laughs> I, I saw your Instagram. I get them screwed up now. I don't know if they're reels or stories or no, what they're I called, but I, I saw, I saw you in a video format on Instagram, <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> and I, I saw, I think it was five or six springs laid out on the table I thought, oh no, mm-hmm. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> I, so what's the, uh, what's the challenge of having, why you, why do you have to make your own and you're not able to purchase them? Uh, for the last pen I made, I mean, technically I could purchase them. Um, it just, I couldn't purchase them in stainless. Like I could purchase them in zinc. Um, but I mean, the whole pen being titanium, I didn't really want to put a, like a standard steel zinc spring. You know, you're buying a $200 pen. Um, it better, right. better have a good spring in it, at least in my opinion. Um, so then I started looking at titanium springs, and then I realized I couldn't buy them. And I'm like, I'll just make one or two to get me through until I, you know, find a source. And then one or two turned into hundreds. And then then you get yourself in kind of a situation where like, well, it doesn't take me long to make them. And then, yeah, then before you know it, you're you're just you're a spring maker. So uh <laughs> something I'm trying to <laughs> yeah. something I'm trying to avoid now. Well, it only takes you a couple of seconds unless the video was sped up, but it seemed like you just like and you were done with each each one. Oh yeah, they don't take long, but I mean, I gotta, I gotta buy titanium wire, and then I gotta make uh, the spring, yeah. and then I gotta clean the spring, and then I gotta anodize the spring, and then you know, I inevitably scrap a few. And yeah, it only takes me thirty seconds to make a spring, but it, it would just be so much nicer just to buy a spring <laughs> and drop it in there. Yeah, exactly, and just and just be done with it. So I'll I'll talk about this rabbit hole, um, <laughs> and of course I can't see it on there now. There it is. Uh, in the guitar world, when you're when you're putting on strings on a guitar. A lot of people use a string winder and it's Mm -hmm. just like, this is a, I don't know, a 50 cent plastic part that everybody has in their case and they wind their strings on. There's a, there's a machinist named Frank Ford who makes these. Nice. And, and this is the smoothest. There's, there's a sleeve and a pin and something else inside of this handle. He has photographs of him making this entire thing. And I can't remember how many parts are involved in here, but everything is made by hand and everything is done to this exceptional tolerance level. And when you put a string, when you wind a string with this, you're like, oh man, I have hit the big leagues. <laughs> and and when, when I saw, first off, I was amazed that Frank put his entire process out there for the world to see because somebody could rip it off, right? Mm-hmm. Then And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, no one in their right mind would make this thing like <laughs> Frank does because it takes so darn long and it has so many parts. But uh, my point is, I feel like when when you're designing something, there's a there's a point at which you become a slave to that design and you have to make the decision that I'm going to do whatever it is I need to do to make this thing come out the way that it needs to come out. And once you sort of put your head down and you go, yep, I'm going to let the design win this time. Everything goes up an order of magnitude in terms of quality, how it feels in your hand, how it looks, what the customer experience is. I feel like, Kurt, I I feel like you've gotten there. You've gone to that crazy space (laughs) of how good can I get this bolt action? You know, I I saw you the other day talking about the piston fit (laughs) and it's just like, he's gotten there. This is awesome. Well, it's, it's fun just to be able to like go so deep onto some little tiny product and then just, you know, put every, just make it ridiculous. And 
people like that. Like people buy $3,000 knives when a $20 knife accomplishes the same thing. It's not because it cuts things. It's because they get enjoyment out of you know, the way it moves or the way it opens or the way it feels in their hands. Or like, I'm, Brian, I'm sure you're the same. A $20 Ikea table does the same thing as your, you know, one of your tables that you make. It holds up my plate while I'm eating it, but you're busy. Yeah, like, there's <laughs> it's a, there's a difference. Yeah, there's a feeling in quality. Like you buy... I, uh, I'm going to pick on Festool again. You buy Festool, it's supposed to be this quality tool, but it's made out of plastic. Uh, this fall, I went and visited my parents. They live in Oregon. And uh, so I flew out there and I'm in my dad's shop and my dad has a lot of my old grandfather's tools. And to pick up a uh, a sander that has an aluminum casing to it, the thing has like this feeling of quality, this feeling of heft. And people complain about vibration and sanding, but this thing had no, mm. no vibration just because it was so heavy in your, in your hand. So it was like this joy to hold this thing. I was like, like waiting for my dad to die so I can go get this <laughs> sander, you know, because like, it was so, it felt so good in my hand. And like, like all the, all those tools from my grandfather's era from the 1930s are just, just great. They just have this great sense of heft and quality to them. When you pick them up, you know, you're holding something quality to where now everything's made out of plastic and, and yeah, it's lightweight, but it, it just doesn't have the same feeling, you know? No, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I find it interesting and it, it probably is, you know, right. There's a, there's a balance between when you're young and you have no money, you can't afford to do, buy the things that you really probably should be buying or would want to buy. And I find the older I get, the more I'm like, forget it. I'm not buying the cheap thing anymore for any reason mm -hmm. on any account. There's this person over here who's exceptionally talented, who's designed this thing. I don't care what it is. I'm going to, I'm going to support that effort because I, I believe there's the, the universe needs these things. And I, I don't think that was always the case. You know, when, when, you know, you rewind the clock, uh, 80 years, there was one version of things and the company that was making that version of things was trying to make a name for themselves. And so, you know, I always go back to the Stanley planes, you know, I've got a number eight that's like mm -hmm. 10 feet long and, and I don't know how old it is. It's ancient. Uh, I, I think it's on this side of the, of the century mark, but it might not be. Um, and you know, a hundred years later, it's still holding up and I would put it against any brand new surface ground uh, Lee Nielsen plane mm -hmm. Every, any day. It's, it's amazing how that works. Yeah. We're getting to a point in our society, unfortunately, where it's getting becoming to cost more to throw it away than it is to buy it. Yeah. Your, I mean, your and, garbage bills becoming higher and higher because you keep throwing so much in there. <laughs> well, that's what I was trying to say. That's kind of the cool thing I think right now is like, there seems to be, I don't want to say like a resurgence because it's probably been happening for like a very long time, but a lot of people want to buy something that is like well-made. And I shouldn't say a lot of people, people in like my world. So I have a small view of what I see of, you know, the general populace, but yeah, there people are buying tons of, you know, inexpensive stuff from, you know, various sources, but people are also willing to shell out good money for something that they feel is, you know, made really well. So I don't know. I think that's really cool. Like the race to the bottom is a scary race to be in. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't want to be making a cheap product because it's so easy to get knocked off and then like, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. is that what drove you into making your own concrete lathe? <sighs> I, I want to know about the concrete lathe. Is that still, uh, is that still in your shop and still functioning? 
Oh no, no, that went out to the concrete lathe farm in the sky a oh. long time ago. Unfortunately, <laughs> that was a. I was initially when I wanted to, uh, I wanted a lathe, and I just, I didn't. I was like, I, I, I could probably build one, and I found some plans for one, and I ended up talking with the designer who made these plans, and no one ever built one, and uh, so he said, whoever builds one, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give you a prize if you build one. So I built one, and uh, and then uh, he actually sent me a big like ten inch uh, three. -day three jaw chuck for it and <laughs> i still sitting along oh, my nice. shelves back here just for the fun of it um but it was it i it worked it just it, you'd never use it for anything other than i mean if it was in like if we had nuclear winter or something like that and you had to build your own lathe at least i have the tech like i know how to make it now but uh it's it's not going to compete <laughs> with even a, a you know a thousand dollar lathe that you get at your you know discount stores um yeah it's it was more of a fun project than anything yeah i had a fun <laughs> time watching that. i watched that whole series it was great oh thanks well, uh, great segue there in terms of making tools and being ultra familiar with the tools that you use. I want to talk about your lathe a little bit. Your It's a Hardinge, right? Mm -hmm. Am I saying that right? I, uh, I've heard it said both ways, yeah. Yeah. And, and this is a lathe that's 30 years old, 40 years old? Yeah, I think this one's about a 70, mid-70s vintage. Yeah, Mid-70s? Oh, well, and 50 years old? Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's old. Uh, it's not that old. <laughs> I, I, I'm from I'm from that vintage of the mid seventies, um, but um, the the thing that I find fascinating, and maybe this is maybe this is that electronics background, is you got in there and almost gutted it electronics wise, right? Mm -hmm. With with maybe a few exceptions, and and I'm I'm digging back. That was that's been at least a year, maybe two years ago that you did all of that work, I believe. Um, but talk to me about the that process a little bit. You went out and bought this thing knowing that you were going to have to tear into it, I'm sure. And yeah. where did it go from there, I guess? Um, so I, I knew a guy on uh, Instagram, um, Dr. Phil. He used to live just south of me a few hours. And uh, he initially picked up that lathe um, from just a, actually from the original owner, as far as I know. Uh, and put it in his garage with the intent to convert it. So he was chatting with me of, you know, uh, what he should put on it. And I said, hey, if you're ever like looking to get rid of it, you know, keep me in mind. And uh, I didn't expect anything of it. And about like, I don't know, six months later, a year later, he's like, hey, I got to get rid of this lathe. Do you want it? So then I came down, took a peek at it. And um, it's it's a nice lathe because it's it's like a perfect garage size machine. Yeah. It's like 3,000 pounds, six feet wide and five feet tall or something. Like it's it's tiny enough to fit into a garage, um, but it needed new everything because it was it was tape driven like it had an equally sized cabinet that came along with it um that i unfortunately didn't have that had, had all the, like the servo amps and uh it would read punch cards to do all the cnc cutting i mean they're really really tight machines um like they easily hold you know sub 10th uh measurements all day or like cuts all day um so i was excited to get one um, i just didn't know the condition of it so uh it was inexpensive enough that i bought it and uh, basically just had to revive it because there's i didn't to buy this servo amps to drive it it was going to be more costly to then than the entire lathe was worth. So I just, I gutted it completely and then just put modern electronics into it and then a modern control onto it. I'm um, just reusing all the old mechanics, uh, which thankfully were in great shape because all those old machines were uh, oil-based machines. So they, they never really rusted because they're just constantly bathed in oil. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful little lathe. I quite like it now. <laughs> I've, I've been watching you hold, uh, I know it was half a thousandth. So I think it was down to either one or two tenths Mm -hmm. in in some of your uh micrometer segments that you've posted and it's just like god that is a people 
normal people don't understand how small that tolerance is. So if you took a piece of paper at three thousandths of an inch, mm -hmm. it is 30 times thinner <laughs> than a piece of paper. So you take a piece of paper and divide it 30 times and that's a tenth. And yeah. being able to repeat that over and over, a speck of dust is what, three times that size, four times that size? Oh, I know. Like you don't, you just people don't understand how insane that is to have any kind of piece of mechanical, whatever repeat that well is ridiculous. And to do it over and over is, and I mean, modern equipment, um, I mean, can do better than there are people working in a, you know, order of magnitude finer than that nowadays, yeah. which is mind boggling. Like you can't even, you can't even have rooms that are fluctuating in temperatures because you, it'll throw your measurements out. Like it's, it's an insanely small, small value. I, I can remember. Um, so my wife's grandfather was a, uh, not a mechanic, a machinist for TWA. So he worked on airplane parts and uh, I'll, I'll tell the story very quickly. He, he was the only person in the world certified to work on rotating Rolls-Royce bearings because Rolls-Royce didn't want anyone doing it. He figured out a technique to, to work on them. So they flew him out and whatever. He he walked through all of their their dog and pony show and made them believers. And that was that. So he was the only one certified in the world to do certain things. But he was holding um uh well, it would be two tenths on some bearing that I can't remember if it was if it was a bearing or if it was a race or what it was. And we were, we were talking about that. And he goes, you know, I would finish a part and I would measure it for tolerance, send it through. They, I think they had two inspections. So they had a TWA inspector, but then they had the FAA inspector. And he said, from the time that it passed <laughs> from his inspector to the FAA inspector, it was out of tolerance. <laughs> then they would bring it back and it would measure intolerance. And then it would go back and they realized that the room temperature between the two inspection spots was off like five degrees and that was enough to screw the tolerance up. It was like, are you kidding me? So that's ridiculous. So uh, how when this thing is in use, how are they going to even control those tolerances? That's, that's nuts. It, well, and, and again, this is the interesting thing is, and I could go all the way down this rabbit hole. His argument was he would get parts, brand new parts from Rolls Royce that would not meet their re manufacturing specifications. So the thing comes off of an airplane because he worked in the overhaul, right? After so many flight hours, they take it all apart. They inspect everything. If something doesn't meet the tolerance, it goes over here and either gets fixed, thrown away and replaced or you know whatever. So he would take the parts off and they would meet the new part spec, but they wouldn't meet the overhaul spec. So then he would have to fix them. And his, his complaint was the new parts don't even meet the overhaul spec. So you can imagine Rolls-Royce is in the business to make money, so they're not going to make it easy to remanufacture their parts. They're going to make it difficult. So mm -hmm. uh, it's it's not that hard to put a jet engine together with brand new parts, piece of cake. <laughs> but if you're remanning the parts, you have to be a lot tighter tolerance. So anyway, just kind of weird how the politics works behind the scenes sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of uh, a video that Adam Savage did a while ago. He was showing off one of his new measuring devices, and he just held a steel ball in his hand for just a few seconds, and he was able to measure a distance just from the heat, causing the steel to expand just that tiny, tiny amount. Yeah, well, like, lots of people don't like, let me pull it around here, uh, like, micrometers, like, they have the little plastic 
handles on the side. People are like, oh, it's full of plastic. It's like, no, the plastic is what you're supposed to hold on to because you'd want to transfer heat into the little right. cast iron because it'll it'll change the the instrument. Then you can't yeah. measure with it. Like it's so plastic bizarre. does have a place in the world. It does have a place. You bet. <laughs> well, there's a there's another rabbit hole that I'm starting to go down. Speaking of plastics, Kurt, you turned me on to the resin printers. Mm -hmm. And it was something that, you know, we all see them, you know, like it wasn't like I was completely unaware of them, but I didn't realize how good the homebrew version or not homebrew, but the, the DIY version of the resin printers is, has gotten, I am amazed at the tolerance those things are holding. I, it's a uh, 50 microns between layers or something like that. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to, I'm trying to equate 50 microns to a measurement that I can realize what, the, I don't know how many, how many uh, thousandths that is. Um, I think it's three, I think. three thousandths. I think I might be horribly wrong. Okay. <laughs> so, well, and, and, but, but that sounds about right. So your layers in your 3d print are basically like th three pieces of paper thick now, instead of uh, I think the extruder that I have over here is like a 30 thousandths or something like that. So significantly smaller in the detail and the smoothness, and they even have uh, anti-aliasing features that that plug in. They're, oh, so good. I know. It blew my mind, too. I'm, I'm kind of with you on the same boat. It's just like, what? This is possible for like this amount of money? This is insane. <laughs> yeah. And your some of your pin parts, your production parts are being made on the resin printer now, right? Uh, yeah. I had one plastic spacer that I was machining for a while just out of a, like acetal or Delrin. And uh, I decided to try printing it. I'm just gonna—I could get a little fancy. I could do things that I couldn't do with machining, or I couldn't easily do with machining. And uh, it worked well. And it—it it, it was within time. I only had only had to hold, I think, plus minus a thou on the part. And uh, I'm just kind of wondering if the resin printer could do it. And I had a friend print me some, and I was like, "Holy smokes, these are way better than I thought." Like I—I I looked at them five years ago, and I was like, "Eh, seems like a lot of effort." And yeah, the new ones, I'm like, "Wow, this is quite impressive." Now I'll have to—I'll have to not confess necessarily. I just got one of your pens uh, a few weeks ago. I got back from, we went and visited family over, over the holidays and I got back and that was in my mailbox and it was like, ah, oh, late <laughs> Christmas presents. <laughs> but oh, I, haven't, again, yeah. I, I haven't taken it apart yet to look at all the guts that mm. that's coming <laughs> because, <laughs> because I have to, um, but the the part that your resin printing is I, i'm i'm speaking from the pictures but it looks like maybe a quarter inch tall something like that and you're able to actually put text around it like you know wedding band style text right around it and that's the level of detail that these resin printers are holding for those for those who don't know like it is an insanely it's like less smaller than typewriter size font on plastic parts with three-dimensional depth. Oh yeah, and you can go 10 times smaller. Like I think that text on that specific part is uh, 80 thou tall and 5 thou deep. And I mean, you could drop it down to 10 thou tall and it's still visible. Like you have to use a micro or a, like a loop at that point, but ridiculous. Like that just, I, I can't believe that's possible with like home printers. <laughs> yeah, and the, well, so, I saw Kirk. So this is, I, I think this is an interesting thing. I think as, as designers, as people who make things, we have to constantly be aware of what's going on around us because if you're not an open channel, you can't, you're not letting people inspire you, whatever that means, you know? And uh, whenever I'm flipping through Instagram or YouTube or whatever else, I'm always taking those mental notes. Like this is a cool thing, 
this person is doing cool things with it. Put it in the back of your brain. When you have an idea, remember that this thing exists and that you can do something with it too. And anyway, I let you inspire me. I, I bought one of these things and I thought, all right, what are we going to do? And, you know, immediately started printing things out that, that are literally, we were going to injection mold some parts and it's been a slow slog on the injection molding side. There's a, there's a, not necessarily a learning curve, but there's a lot of things to do before you get your first part on the mold side of things. And uh, anyway, it was like, wait a minute, I can bypass all of that headache right now and start making parts that are literally nice enough to sell as a commercial item and not home printed thing. You know, they just don't have that look to them. And anyway, mm -hmm. so, uh, so yeah, we're, we're currently making parts for sale on that resin printer. It's a, it's a money generator. That's wild. That, that's so cool. <laughs> so, uh, so does the uh, resin printer print faster than a PLA? Cause not even I, close. Not uh, even it's close. Cause it's, I printed this thing and it was like a full day. Oh, well, yeah, it would print faster than that. Um, I want to, so resin printers don't care how complicated it is. They don't care what size the part is in X and Y. They only care the size in Z. So the taller your part is, the slower it prints. Um, so it's got a platform and then it exposes a plate. Uh, the one that we have is maybe like two inches by four and a half, something like that. It's it's not very big. Tiny, yeah. it, it's, it's this size. It's the size of a phone. Okay. And it's got an ultraviolet light bulb of some kind <laughs> and a, uh, an LCD or uh, whatever the DLP, there it is, the DLP chip that that uh, just like a projector projects it to the surface and then exposes an ultraviolet sensitive resin to the bottom of the plate. And then the plate moves up nine thousandths of an inch, if that's the measurement. And then it does it again and it does it again and it does it again. So it moves it nine thousandths of an inch of a, at a time. And it takes about five, four to five seconds for each level to expose maybe. So it's basically so, taking a, like a picture, but not necessarily a picture, but yeah. it's freezing that across the whole thing. So it's not like a PLA printer where it has to zigzag right. back and forth across the whole thing, taking forever. So the PLA is is the pen plotter back in the old CAD days. Yeah. And this is the laser printer, but it prints very, very thin layers. So, but I want to say um, I had a print that was probably an inch and a half tall that took three hours. Sounds about right. But yeah. you can print five of those things if they'll fit on the plate it takes the exact same time exactly kurt, yeah. kurt you're doing like 20 parts at a time right i think one of them those small parts is like 100 100 parts on a plate and it only takes half an hour to print them because they're only a quarter inch tall and like you said yeah. the complexity doesn't matter so i could just get crazy with the complexity and just let it run and if it uh, fails oh well i've i've wasted a dollar of resin and you know i i fired up at night because there's literally no like there's no risk really. I mean, the DLP generates, I think, four watts of heat uh, yeah. and that's about it. So I'm, I'm comfortable running that overnight. No problem. And yeah, it's a wild, it's a wild process. I looked it up. 25 microns is about a thou. So, okay. Yeah. 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 So two thou. Two thou. Yeah. yeah. Ridiculous. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> my, I don't know. I, we, we live in a really cool time and space uh, that, you know, if, if I would have been born 40 years prior you miss this stuff completely, right? Or, yeah, probably. Oh, and year like, olds. yeah. I, I was talking with somebody just a while back. They're like, your business probably wouldn't succeed, you know, 15 years ago. I'm like, no, it would have been wildly different because, I mean, like it or hate social media, like it's it's opened the world up to people like me working in my garage. Like I've sold more 
product, you know, a thousand miles away from me than I've ever sold locally. It's just, it's a wild, it's a wild thing. Yeah. And you're able to get into other markets, uh, like for, for furniture, it costs like on average to have something, a piece of furniture shipped to another state is a thousand to $1,500 blanket wrapped delivered to the, to the, uh, the homeowner. And I've shipped stuff to California, not, not super regularly, but enough to know that my price to pay me a livable wage here in Colorado is cheaper than California. So I can compete in the California market. Oh, that's cool. And all through, all just through social media is how they, those people generally find me. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Oh, that's a whole other headache. (laughs) And and I I guess I'm saying it this way, shipping, shipping, you know, fine furniture across the country. That's a, I just boxed up a a piece for a gallery show in, uh, at one of the universities in Missouri. And, you know, they had this whole list of, it needs to be created this way and done this way and that way. And I'm like, you know what, I'm the owner of this thing and I'm the guy who built it. And, uh, it's already got one little Nick in it. (laughs) If it gets nicked again, I'm not building a crate, not today. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, yeah, blanket wrap shipping is way easier than uh, creating because creating, you got some guy that doesn't give a shit driving a forklift, just slamming that thing around blanket wrap. They come, they, they photograph it. They wrap it themselves in, in, uh, uh, moving blankets, and then they strap it to the wall of the truck. And then they go to the next place and strap the next one on the other side of the wall of the truck or whatever. And then when they deliver, they just unwrap it. So there's no, forklifts being slammed into anything I, there's less less damage every ups thing fedex thing <clears throat> all those freight companies they're all like all right well you're you're buying me a new piece now because you busted it but bracket wrap never never a problem well, that's great to hear i sent a guitar <clears throat> too so <laughs> i i put the guitar in a flight case so i think yeah. it's gonna be okay but uh anyway I- <laughs> I, I, I guess still, I, I still don't envy your world, Brian. I mean, I guess you're you're not shipping ten dressers a day either, but I, no, that no. still sounds yeah. Shipping is always a headache <laughs> and terrifying, but yeah. I don't know, Kurt. Do you do you ship around the world too, or are you just mm-hmm. U.S. and Canada? Yeah, around the world. Yeah, internationally. Yeah. I find it fascinating that you know. I mean, again, thirty years ago, this wasn't the case. Like somebody in Germany wouldn't be logged in to watch you do what you do and say, wow, I need one of those. And, you know, it's our our reach is pretty amazing, I suppose, when you think about it. Yeah. So international shipping, what kind of, do you have like a whole bunch of hoops and laws to jump through to get something from uh, Canada to, I imagine the U.S. is pretty easy, but like New Zealand or wherever else in the world you ship to? Uh, Not so much. I mean, there's just your, I mean, thankfully at my old job, I did a lot of uh, shipping of parts. So, I mean, you, you put your, like your codes, you basically tell it, you know, what you're shipping and, um, declare how much it is. That's basically all they want. They just want, they just want their cut out of it. And, uh, it's, <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty easy, especially with metals. Um, woods, that's kind of the reason I, it's nice working in metals is woods are a little bit weird or they kind of are more stingy on that stuff. Um, but metals, they really don't care. Um, as long as you, as long as you follow the rules and be a good boy, uh, everything seems to work out. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about design just a little bit. And with with some of the different iterations that you've had, and and we'll talk about the pen world, but if you if you want to expand it to other worlds, that's fine too. But how how many iterations do you get through before you find a pattern 
or a texture or a, a, a way of assembling things that you're very happy with. How long is that process and what does that kind of look like? I don't, I don't know if it ever stops. Um, like from when I started making, like the bolt action pens have been my most popular pen. And it's basically all I make right now. I used to make a bunch of stuff. And now I just solely make that single pen. Um, and just like every single batch, it, there would always be something minor. Uh, you know, 99 out of 100 people wouldn't notice the change, but it was just something small. Like I would I would change the way whatever threading worked or I'd change the tolerance or move something or put a chamfer slightly bigger, slightly small. So I don't know. I think it's just constantly evolving. Um, I don't think there's ever... Like if I look at my iteration count in like fusion or something like that, yeah, it'd be like, it'd be thousands. Um, but to, like from a raw idea to something that I'm going to sell, um, I don't know, maybe 20 revisions or something like that of part, like not full prototypes and maybe partial prototypes till I get something. And it depends on the complexity, I suppose as well. But for, in my world, that's, that's about kind of how long it takes me to get something I'm, I'm happy with, happy releasing into the wild. Yeah. I, I asked that because it, it is so easy to... When you're making one of something, it's very different than making a hundred of something. And I don't mean that in a good way versus a bad way. It's just a very different thing. Mm -hmm. And when you're making one of something, you're you're when you make a move, you have to be confident that that's the right move because you can't undo it sometimes. But when you're making a hundred of something, you can undo anything and you can <laughs> undo anything at any time. And and so there's this there's a different level of commitment. And I would say on making one of something, when you're going to make that move, you got to be committed to that move. But when you're going to make a hundred of them, there's a whole different thought process of, do I need to change this three or four more times and go through a couple more samples and a few more prototypes and nail it? Because I'm, I'm going to be using this over and over and over again. No. Yeah, totally. And I mean, the, I mean, part of me also doesn't want to like, I don't want to screw past people that bought one of my pens and let's say down the road, um, you know, a year down the road, they want a replacement part for something that gets like, especially when you're getting tighter and tighter and tighter tolerances, it's like, okay, I got to make sure that I have masters right now so that, you know, years down the road when I'm making, you know, tweaks to the design, it's still, it's still backwards compatible with what's out there. And for the most part, I, I can usually send out a product, like I'll put it on the low end of the tolerance range if I have to replace something for somebody. Um, but I mean, most people don't expect that out of a pen either. Um, and thankfully, there's not a, I haven't had to do that a ton. Um, uh -huh. But yeah, that's, that's something that always crosses my mind. Like, how far can I advance before I have to kind of like cut it and then make a new product out of it where you're just kind of hamstrung by your your past choices? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So do you uh, do you keep uh, track of all the other stuff you said you have masters? Is that like so you can go back and like test the fit if you needed to do any kind of warranty work? Yeah, you bet. Like I'll have <laughs> just recently. um. So I'll build a master that I can always cross compare to. And like I have jigs, um, but I also have a master that I never touch because I'll have like go and no go gauges for specific parts that I've, that I've made for pens. But as you use them, they start to wear. Um, and then if you keep using them and they keep wearing, you start adjusting your tolerance to the worn part. And then, you know, after X amount of time um, of, you know, using that part as a, as a test piece, you're so far out of tolerance that it wouldn't fit the original part. So then I have, I have masters that I don't touch that I have to cross compare my masters with. And it's like, it's just, yeah, it's turtles all the way down. Um, so that yeah, was part that's, of the, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. That's part of the scary thing on my, my end with furniture and things is that, that I would have to have them send it back because I keep nothing and I have, I have no, I have no, uh, cataloging system or whatever, go back and watch the YouTube video of maybe how I built it or whatever. But 
but to make sure it fit, I'd have to have them send it back so I could, I could fit it, fit yeah, it properly. And that makes perfect sense, especially in your world where it's a, I mean, no one expects to, you know, send one of your products. Just, just give me a new leg for my table. You but like, I, I could see that not working out so yeah. well. And then also finish and wear in the finish to make it match the old finish and all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You gotta, you gotta just send the whole thing back. I get questions all the time on the guitar side of things. I make templates for people who want to build guitars. And those templates are based, uh, I'll say loosely, but that's not accurate. Um, they're based on some well-known guitars. And people are always like, well, you know, this is definitely going to fit my 1986 fill in the blank. And it's like, it is not at all going <laughs> to fit that. I, I would highly recommend that, you know, the areas on the template where parts have to fit together, you know, put six or seven layers of tape around there and, you know, make sure that that the piece you're cutting has plenty of extra meat on it. And then you're going to have to hand file that thing down to the point where it actually, you know, meets the tolerance. Because I think if you took a hundred guitars off the same factory line, they're not going to, they're not going to fit back and forth. You know, they pick a neck and a body that fit well together. And, and in a lot of cases, hand sand them to fit. And yeah, there's no way you can get one off the shelf. That's going to do anything for you. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Look at like auto manufacturing, right? Like people always complain yeah. about the fit and finish of like car parts, but it's like, they're, they're trying to make them fit. Like they're making tens of thousands of these. Like they make the tolerances as loose as they possibly can. So that everything fits up when, you know, things move and rust and, you know, age with time. I get a kick out of, I, I have a bunch of friends in the hot rod world that build cars. And everybody complains about replacement fenders for 1960s cars. And I'm like, what has that car been through? And and there now, there is some justification for a lot of it. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of really bad car parts out there. But you know, when when something's off by a couple fractions, it's like, what is it? How many times has that car been hit? You know, how many times was <laughs> it? run into the edge of the garage door or grocery carts hitting it or, you know, fill in the blank or on the back country roads with the teenagers. <laughs> and anyway, I, I'm just amazed that that they still are making parts for some of those old cars. And anyway, that, that tolerance bug is, is a deep, deep hole to go down as well. Holy mackerel. Yeah. So since we're talking about old things, trying to, to segue around to a question I wanted to ask earlier when we were talking about your old job, because I think this came from your old job, but uh, your very first YouTube video, you have a thing called an inverted pendulum from 16 years ago. Oh yeah. Inverted <laughs> pendulum. What the heck is that thing? I've, there, there was no explanation on that, on yeah. that video, but it was like the most intriguing looking thing. I that have no idea. That was one of the projects I had when I was in school. So we had a we had a robotics elective, um, and that's the one I took because I was big into robots, still big into robots, obviously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, one of my projects was it, it, like a pendulum, but an inverted pendulum. So it would balance. Segway is the best. They didn't exist mm -hmm. at that point, but Segway is a perfect example of that. Um, and I wanted to do it with a control algorithm that was far more simple and it shouldn't have worked but it did so yeah. i shot a video of it and that was like two days before the project was due and i ended up putting it on youtube to prove to my professor that it, it did indeed work um but yeah it was just uh that's that's what you see is all it does is just a, a two-wheeled robot that just balances um balances upright just like a segway do you think segway ripped you off after they they saw god, that god no god no no they're doing <laughs> so much more that was just a i was using an infrared sensor bouncing to the ground measuring the distance to the ground 
and then using the wheel speed um, in a kind of a, a loop to figure out if it was, you know, leaning one way or the other. And uh, yeah. it's an interesting problem. It's a, it's a really common uh, control systems problem. So uh, my professor was, he was big into it. Uh, he, that, that's what he did for his thesis project. So I got extra points because uh, he liked uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's awesome. Well, I'm looking at the clock. We've been on for about an hour. Um, I don't know if there's if there's there's definitely more ground to cover. I think we could do this for six or eight more hours, and I'd still have questions and things I want to talk about. But oh, it's so fun uh, chatting with you guys. Yeah. <laughs> likewise, and so uh, I don't know, Brian. Is there any other questions you want to ask before we wrap up? I do. I have one more question. Okay. And uh, I asked this of a, a machinist we had, uh, Tony Rollo. And he gave me a very politically correct answer, which which was fine, but it was the wrong answer. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a hint on the answer. But uh, the question is, to be a master machinist, do you machine in imperial or metric? Here's my uh, my hint. <laughs> I like the hint. Um, all my equipment here is imperial. So that's just my brain goes to, um, I mean, Canada. So we're kind of bilingual on the measurement system here. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I interchange between them both. Uh, just, I mean, millimeters are superior, but uh, uh, see, it's, it's got to be. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll go I, with I, what the machines say. Okay. Yeah. I, so, I, yeah, because I was curious because you kept talking uh, in um, an imperial increments and in on your YouTube channel, you talk in imperials a lot of times, but you live in Canada in the metric system. So I thought, huh, interesting. Yeah. We still go to the like the lumber store sells two by fours. Everything is measured in inches. It's yeah, it's a messed up system. It's uh <laughs> we gotta we gotta switch or just yeah, whatever. But yeah. I I find that my Canadian and British friends are very good interunit uh speaking. That's the wrong way to say it, but very very it, good yeah. at interchanging the units. I'm I'm marginal at it, but they my British and Canadian friends are very good. <laughs> Oh, we have to we get it inundated with with either or. Like it's just sometimes yeah. the supplier doesn't have a one eighth end mill, but they got a three millimeter end mill. It's like, well, I could I could probably make that work too. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, now uh, now my brain is swirling. How do you how do you do uh, corrections for where? Oh, geez, if you're using anyway, <laughs> let, me, let me substitute this for that. Oh gosh, okay, sounds good. Uh, well, cool. Uh, we'll we'll wrap it up on Brian's <laughs> trick question there, but Kirk, it was it was fantastic having you on the show. And for anybody out there, again, uh, Kurt's YouTube and uh, Instagram is Confounded Machine. You can all, also find his website, and you can stalk his website for when he opens up <laughs> his purchasing windows and gives people the ability to buy pens. I think right now, though, uh, you're actually making making pens that are just going to go up for sale, which is kind of a, something that I haven't seen maybe in a while from you, but that's kind of cool too. Yeah. I'm going to try to do stock. I haven't, haven't been successful in years now, but uh, I'm going to just try to try to do that. Just frequent releases in stock because pre-sales, pre-sales are great. It's just, uh, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to switch the system up for a little bit here until I, until I get the new, new uh, pen design exactly where I want it to be. So that'll be awesome. Well, Again, uh, I'm Greg Porter. You can find me at Skyscraper Guitars and at Greg's Garage on YouTube and Instagram. And I'm Brian Benham. You can find me everywhere at Benham Design. And uh, you're listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. We'll have uh, links to all of Confounding Machines, uh, uh, Instagram and YouTube. And uh, where else are you at? You have your website. We'll have links to that at our website in the show notes at themakersquest.com.
Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for having me, you guys.